It's Thursday, August 2nd, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump took to Twitter again to rail against the Robert Mueller investigation and also the trial against his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. The president was calling on Attorney General Jeff Sessions to end the witch hunt before it stains the country any further. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about Trump's call to end the Mueller probe and Paul Manafort's trial. Next, as more people are submitting their genetic data to DNA testing companies, questions about how long companies can keep your data and more importantly, what they do with your data keep popping up. Some of the top DNA testing companies have all agreed to new rules on how to best handle your information. Xavier Harding, tech writer for Mike, joins us for more on how these companies are managing your data. Finally, it might be time to get a dash cam for your car. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today, tells us why the time may be right to install one in your vehicle. It just might provide the right evidence in a car accident, it could protect you from a scam, and you might just enjoy the footage if you catch something fun. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president stating his opinion. Um, it's not in order, but he's been, I think, uh, crystal clear about how he feels about this investigation from the beginning. There's a reason that the president's angry, and frankly, most of America is angry as well. And there's no reason he shouldn't be able to voice that opinion. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios. The president fired off a series of tweets railing against the Mueller probe and he even called on Attorney General Jeff Sessions to end the probe now. He's uh, calling it the rigged witch hunt. What else did he say? This isn't the first time that he sent a message like this on Twitter. In fact, Trump has repeatedly pressured Sessions to end the investigation on at least four occasions. And in this latest tweet, the president told Sessions, first of all, to end the investigation, quote, before it continues staying our country any further, and went on to call Bob Mueller, quote, totally confused. After this tweet was sent out, the White House quickly went on the defense with both the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and Press Secretary Sarah Sanders saying that the tweet wasn't an order from the president, just him expressing his personal opinion. But between the lines here, our sources tell us here at Axios that this isn't a directive to Sessions. More likely, this is just a part of the broader effort to beat up on Mueller, trying to smear him and erode his credibility and use Trump's power over his base to move them against the probe. Right. And th- there was already reports saying that Mueller was going to be looking into the president's tweets as possible evidence of obstruction and things like that. And we kind of already went through this. The problem is that we've already established that the president's tweets are oftentimes official White House statements. So there's that kind of confusion. When is it an opinion? When is it an official statement? And I think a lot of people were trying to jump on that today. Absolutely. And this is something that many people have dubbed the president's tweets being official statements. So this is really a pickle that the White House has been in since the president took office and has fired off a lot of these very damning tweets towards many people in his own administration. The other thing that the president tweeted about was Paul Manafort, who's going through trial right now on a series of charges. He tweeted that Paul Manafort worked for Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, And uh, why didn't the government tell me that he was under investigation, calling the probe a hoax again? And then he even said, who's been treated worse, Al Capone or Paul Manafort, political operative and Reagan Dole darling? So he's like, where is the Russian collusion? But Paul Manafort is on trial right now for a range of charges. What's going on with Paul Manafort? Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, he's facing charges of tax and bank fraud in relation to 
the laundering of $30 million in income, acting as an unregistered foreign agent, lying to authorities, and obstruction of justice. And this trial is the first of special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign and its possible ties to Russian interference in the 2016 election. In this trial, Mueller's team isn't expected to make any references to the word Russians or collusions, and they haven't yet. But the team has instead focused on Manafort's alleged financial crime. Right. This is uh, supposedly, obviously, has nothing to do with the president. This is just something that stemmed from the investigation and uh, that uh, Mueller was doing, and they're going to catch him on all these financial crimes. A lot of people are still saying, hey, this is not about President Trump, but it is also about President Trump. And it's just, is that just because it's coming out of the Mueller trial or are people trying to look for deeper meaning into it? It is a mix of both. So Mueller obviously has interest in Paul Manafort and his ties to the Trump campaign. So the trial so far has not gotten into that connection, but it focused a lot about his spending habits and very luxurious spending habits and how a lot of these very large expenses from a two-year bill worth over $300,000 at a luxury clothing store was made via wire transfers, which are pretty unusual for purchases of such. Yeah, these are all payments that he was getting from uh, his time working with uh, Ukraine. And yeah, the, as you said, prosecutors are trying to paint him as using all this money, laundering it basically by buying these lavish suits. And so much so that the judge even said, hey, you can't show pictures of that anymore. You can't show pictures of his closet and everything like that because it's not illegal to be throwing around money. Exactly. And all of this is so interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, he is facing charges of tax and bank fraud and secretly keeping money in offshore accounts. So many of these testimonies that we saw in the trial, especially on the second day, are getting at the prosecution's argument that Manafort could be guilty of money laundering and possibly tax fraud. The judge in the Manafort trial for day two was also warning prosecutors not to use the term oligarchs because you don't want to paint Paul Manafort or these other people in a bad light. Like you don't want to make it seem like he's a bad guy coordinating with other bad guys, even though that's the whole purpose of the prosecution's case there. While the judge did say that they can't focus on the term oligarchs, Manafort's defense team did quickly place their blame on one of Manafort's confidants and former business partners, Rick Gates, who did strike a plea deal with Mueller a few months ago and has been reportedly been cooperating ever since. The defense said that Gates lied to federal investigators about Manafort's taxes and described Manafort as a liar in their opening statement. Right. And he figures to be very prominent in this trial because the defense is going to pin it on him, basically. And the prosecution was kind of a little wishy-washy saying, oh, he might testify, he might not testify. So they're just trying to keep everybody on their toes with that, it seems. Someone who did come to the witness stand was Tad Devine, who was Bernie Sanders' chief strategist during his 2016 campaign and worked with both Manafort and Gates in Ukraine on a pro-Russia political campaign. What Devine testified was that Manafort was in charge of that campaign and described he and Gates as underlings claiming that Manafort brought an American-style political sense to Ukraine. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For me, the ancestry data is like the big deal. Hopefully one day we can put together the entire human tree. 
it'll be easier for everyone to find interconnections. I found out that I was actually related to an African-American professor at Stanford. We're distant cousins. I find that fascinating that you can be connected to these people that you would think you would have no connection to. Joining us now is Xavier Harding, tech and culture writer for Mike. So we're going to be talking about these DNA testing companies. There was big news that happened a few months ago where the Golden State Killer was caught. They said they connected his uh, DNA through a DNA company, specifically was GED Match, GED Match. And the circumstances are different, but then it really started raising questions about privacy relating to your DNA. Just recently, a bunch of DNA testing companies, 23andMe, Ancestry, Helix, MyHeritage, a few others, they all join into an agreement to better protect your genetic information. What do we know about that? So the Future of Privacy Forum recently put out these baseline best practice rules, and they got the major DNA testing companies to all sign on board. Real quick, Future yeah. of Privacy Forum, what kind of group are they? They've been monitoring a few different areas of tech. So they deal with driverless cars. They've dealt with DNA testing kits. They've done a few facial recognition parts of their website as well. They just deal with a lot of different aspects of privacy policy. And a few of the rules that they put out, they want companies to be open with users about how their DNA is collected, used, and shared. The users have to be able to access and delete their DNA data whenever they want, and they have to get very specific permission from you if they want to give your genetic info to health researchers, which we actually saw last week, 23andMe did just that with GSK. Yeah, so they joined into an agreement with that company, Glasgow Smith Klein, and what they're doing is they're offering up DNA samples so that they can go in and identify drugs that they might be able to develop based on people's genetic markers. So for 23andMe, if your genetic information is in there, very possible that this other company is going to get to see it and, and use it for their own purposes. I had emailed with 23andMe yesterday, and they were telling me that to even be part of this, they say that you have to specifically say, okay, I'm opting into having my DNA sent to GSK. And I think it's just so interesting seeing the ways that we saw what Facebook did with our data when it comes to things we use in Messenger, that the photos were tagged in. We saw how messy that got when the data is shared with all these different companies and how it can affect things. Thinking of how DNA, once it gets out there, could be used for good, you know, with these researchers, but then possibly for harm. We saw the law enforcement example. There are probably examples going forward in the future that we haven't thought of yet. Once the DNA is out there, you can't really take it back. Yeah, the tricky thing is, I mean, they anonymize a lot of the information before they share these things a lot of times, but there was just a breach not too long ago. No, like, hardcore information was shared, but still, I mean, I got one of these for Christmas. I still haven't used it, but I got one of these for Christmas, and then all this privacy stuff started happening. Even deleting your information from these websites can be tricky, and they all have different methods of doing it. 23andMe, you know, you spit in a little tube and send your sample in. They can destroy your spit, but they can keep your data for up to a decade. Ancestry, they won't toss your spit out unless you specifically call them. And you have the option of maybe deleting your data there. Other companies will keep your stuff indefinitely. And, you know, these are things that people don't really realize when they're just trying to find out what's in my family tree. Right. Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned that you got it for like the holiday season because I talked to Jules Polonetsky. He's the CEO of the SPF of the Future of Privacy Forum. And he was telling me he was seeing so many ads for these genetic testing kits during the holidays. But what the ads didn't talk about were like the potential privacy implications of how it could be bad to have your DNA just sent off into the ether. Yeah, he mentioned that, you know, the, the deal kind of took about a year to kind of formulate. He talked with all the major companies. 
And after one year, they were able to get these guidelines out there. With regards to the opt-in and opting out, I don't know how clear they made it. Can you opt out after a certain time? Let's say you initially right. started the process and you said, okay, use my stuff for research is fine. Can you later opt out? With the case of 23andMe, if you go into your settings, you can also opt out and make sure your data is never used with these researchers if you so choose. And what I was going to mention before is that a lot of these companies will anonymize the data by removing your name. And I haven't really uh, talked to any experts about this, but I'm always, I'm always a little wary just because even though my name might not be attached to my DNA, it's still my DNA. So there has to be some kind of unique markers in there. Right. So I'm always kind of a little wary. Do we know what the real danger is of your genetic material getting out there? I mean, I, like I mentioned the Golden State Killer thing, and in that case, it was used for good. We were able to track down a murderer and, and tie him to a crime. Beyond that, do we know what people are really worried about if their genetic material gets out there? It's not like people are going to be making clones of you or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I hope there are no clones of me out there already. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, I think... The thing is, we don't know yet. The use for law enforcement, your genetic data, that doesn't happen very, very often. It can happen, but it doesn't happen often. But I think the fact that we don't know yet, once it gets out there, you can't take it back. There's a danger there. I mean, when your phone number or your, your address gets leaked out into the internet, you can change your phone or your address. If your DNA gets out, how do you change your DNA? Right. You really have to read all of the privacy rules. And sometimes it's tough to understand all the legalese that they use in there and to, to understand what the wording means. So you have to be really diligent. Well, it's good to see that these uh, DNA testing companies are taking proactive steps to establish rules and let people know about it. Xavier Harding, tech and culture writer for Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If these little cameras sense any kind of collision or any incident, it automatically locks that file and won't record over it. Joining us now is Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. So we're going to talk about dash cams every time I get into an Uber. And uh, every now and then you see the blinking red light. And I like to chat my Uber drivers up every now and then. I'm like, hey, what, you know, what is that? What's going on? Like, oh, we have these cameras uh, in case something happens on the ride. We can always prove what happened beyond that. In case an accident happens, we always have some type of video evidence. So I've been seeing these all over the place. And then I saw your article about dash cams and why it's time to maybe get one for yourself. So what is this all about? You're right that they are becoming more popular. They first started to gain in popularity in some countries where there was a lot of insurance scams. There was people trying to extort money from you, including the police. You know, you get a speeding ticket. They'll say, OK, I won't write you a ticket, but give me 50 bucks or whatever. Right. It's happened in Russia, happens in Mexico, other countries. Exactly. Particularly in Russia. I saw a few Wired articles where they said why everybody in Russia has a dash cam. And it's for those exact same reasons. You just want yeah, to protect right. yourself and have evidence. Right. Or if you smash up your car because you were drunk, then you can say to the insurance company, oh, somebody hit me and then they took off and then they tried to you know, get them to pay out the claim or they jump in front of the car and say they were hit or they weren't hit at all. And they were claimed they were hit. So, I <laughs> right. mean, the list goes on and on. Right. From unscrupulous, you know, police checks to faking an injury or a collision. So they needed 
evidence. So these are affordable little cameras that you mount to your windshield or your dashboard. They usually face forward like a GoPro, and it's always shooting video in a loop, a continuous loop. And if these little cameras sense any kind of collision or any incident, it automatically locks that file and won't record over it. And then what you can do is either play it back on, usually there's a little screen, but better yet, you can stream that video to a smartphone app or pop out that memory card and put it into a computer or into a TV, and then you've got evidence of whatever happened. But keep in mind, it could implicate you too, right? These things often know how fast you're going. Hey, Mark, uh, I'm not if, doing if, anything bad while I'm driving. Right. I don't know why you're exactly. mentioning that. Right. I'm just saying it's important to remind people that that, that can be used against you, right? Right. So, right. so that's the idea. And then people started really having fun with these things. It started capturing things like comets streaking across the sky yeah. or um, wildlife, a moose or a deer right in front of your, your vehicle in Canada and barely missing you. And you've got this really cool memory captured with your family. <laughs> so that kind of, you know, hopefully it's, yeah, yeah, for, it's for a, people, had a happy ending. For people that uh, upload to YouTube a lot, I mean, you can, there's potential to capture some really cool stuff. So how much do some of these run? So they start off at about 50 bucks. That's just for a regular 720p. So it's still high definition, but not the best quality out there. And some memory. Again, you don't really need a lot of memory because, again, it records in a loop. And then should there be an incident, it usually locks it down or you can just pop it out before it overrides it. And then, you know, similar to a DVR that's tied to your home security camera solution, it's the same idea. Is that a standard thing for these cameras, the incident marker when it yes. detects something? Oh, okay. That's that's actually yeah, pretty cool. It's, it's a cheap sensor that a lot of the dash cam manufacturers put in there. Not all of them have it. So you're going to want to look for that. It's often called a G sensor. Gotcha. Look for that on the box or on the website if you're buying one off Amazon or wherever. So that's a good feature to have, but it's pretty common. Prices start at about 50 bucks. It's a DIY thing in most cases. You can hire a service to tuck the wires into your vehicle. For example, that where you're, you know, often they require power. Sometimes they have a little bit of battery life, but you do want to plug them into your car. So it'll take power from the car's battery. So it could be plugged into like a cigarette lighter, a 12 volt adapter or into a USB port, but you want to tuck those cables. So it's nice and clean. You don't want to, yeah. you know, the spaghetti cables. I mean, so you I, may want to hire a service to do it. I've seen some that just hang right off of your rear view mirror. Even it's like a little medallion type camera. So I've seen some very simple setups and some more yeah, elaborate setups. Right. Some of the cool features that some of these even have is a thing called like parking mode. So as you said, these things have the sensors when uh, something gets hit or grazed. So even if the car is off and it senses something, the uh, parking mode will kick in and start the video. So if somebody's trying to break in, in the car or somebody just hit your car in the parking lot of uh, the grocery store, you might be able to catch something there as well. And in some of the models, you can actually look in on an app remotely. So you could be walking around a mall and all of a sudden your smartphone buzzes and you look at it and it shows you the video footage of someone trying to break into your car or someone hitting your car and then taking off and you've got the license plate now captured. So they just consume less power in this mode. But if it detects vibration, it wakes up if you will, and then starts recording. With some of the models, it faces forward. And if it detects that you're driving faster than the vehicle in front of you, it will alert the driver with uh, lights or sound to say, hey, slow down because the guy in front of you isn't driving as fast. So a lot of the cars today have that built in, this collision detection. But now some dash cams have that feature too. And I've been wanting to get one of these actually for a little bit only because I recently had somebody crack my headlight 
But, you know, I wasn't in there. My car was parked and I never got to see anything. But, you know, if I might have had something like this, maybe I would have been able to catch the person. Not a lot of them have that parking mode. So definitely look for that if that's a feature that interests you. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.